0: Please open your Bibles with me this morning to First Peter in chapter two, and it's a delight to be able to worship corporately with you this morning. I welcome those who are watching online as well, and uh, it's been a great, great morning and a lot of excitement in the air for VBS. And uh, remember, we don't just do corporate evangelistic events and say we've done it. We do this so that we can, on a personal level, also between events. Be sharing our faith in our cul-de-sacs, and with our families and with our friends and neighbors, and we're excited about tonight. Though there's going to be some crazy stuff going on around here, and I'm all for crazy, so let's do this. First Timothy chapter two. I think you have a copy of a handout for this morning too. If that will help you track with me, I was looking at the sports calendar uh, this past week and. And a major sporting event has snuck up on me. Some of you may enjoy soccer, some may not enjoy soccer. It's sometimes hard to, with all the politicization and, and uh, culture wars going on, using sports as a venue for their message. But still, there are some exciting sport events out there that show mastery of discipline and training. And one of those is coming up next month and into August, and it's the Women's World Cup Soccer Tournament. It's going to be held this year in Australia and New Zealand. And so I have a question. What must our American female athletes keep in mind about themselves in order to keep them grounded while on this trip to Australia and New Zealand? Is their focus merely to be on the press and their name, image, and likeness revenue? Is their concern merely to be on politics or on the culture war? Is their main focus supposed to be on the threat of terrorism? Is their main focus supposed to be on if the ref is cheating or not? No, all of those are not what they're going to keep their mind on to keep them grounded in the strife of competition. As a matter of fact, I think you can bring it down to just uh, one thing that they need to focus on during the whole trip. And it's their name. There's a few names that they need to keep in mind. They need to keep in mind their personal name that's on the back of their jersey. They need to keep in mind their country's name. They need to keep in mind their teammate's name that they're playing on a team with. And they need to keep in mind their coach's name. And just tune into that one voice from the sideline. It's a matter of keeping their names straight that will make them a success in this tournament in July in August. In other words, they just need to remember who they are. That's it. You know, as we've been studying through 1 Peter, we find ourselves now 3 messages into after today into chapter 2. And I find it interesting, and I pointed this out last week that in chapter 2, Peter is calling Christians a bunch of names. You see, what are the names he's calling Christians? Well, in chapter 2, verse 2, as we saw last week, he's calling Christians, hungry babies, and it's a good thing. This speaks to their relationship with God's Word. But in chapter 2, verse 5, as we will look at this morning, he's not just going to call them hungry babies, he's going to call them living stones. This speaks to God's people and our unity. When we get to chapter 2, verse 9, he's going to call all of us Christians by another name, a chosen people. This speaks to great privilege. And yet there's a fourth name he's going to call us believers in this chapter. It'll start in verse 11 and take us deep into the rest of the epistle. He's going to call us again temporary travelers. As he opened this epistle with in chapter 1, he's going to resume that name In chapter 2, verse 11. And this will speak to our personal holiness. Peter's calling Christians names. We don't let our children call other people names, but in this case, we'll let Peter do it. As a matter of fact, if we are indeed living out a radical discipleship as believers of Jesus Christ... Our culture here in the West in 2023 is going to call us a lot of names, aren't they? If we are serious about our faith in the culture that is in a downgrade of depravity, barreling headlong into God's just wrath, those people are going to call us names. They're going to use names like, we're fools. They're going to say that we are too simple-minded. They're going to call us backward. They're going to say that we are politically incorrect. Some may even call us archaic. Some will call us ah ah-cultural. Some will just plain out say we're uncool. Some will and are calling us bigots. They are calling us phobics. We are out of touch, we ignore science, we are haters, etc., etc. The culture is going to call us names, but I want to suggest to you this morning that the names that Peter calls us will win out, because what Peter calls us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this epistle will keep you grounded during the conflict of suffering. I want to focus on that second name this morning. We see it in verse 5. Peter's calling believers living stones. It's so important. Look at verse 4. And coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is God's choice and precious in the sight of God, This precious value, then, is is for you who believe. But But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Quite a text. And keep in mind as we go into these verses that Peter, in this epistle, is preparing his readers to suffer in the wave of persecution that is right at their doorstep and in some quarters had already started and many will die in this wave of persecution, including the author, Peter. Peter is preparing these readers to suffer and to suffer hard, but suffer well. And so I say in the dark shadow of persecution, then and right now here in the West, each believer must treasure five realities that they share, listen, with all believers locally and globally, across the centuries and across all cultures. We share five realities. I want you to see these this morning. First of all, what do we share in common? A constant access to Jesus. A constant access to Jesus. Look at the first part of verse 4. It simply starts, continuing a thought from the previous sentence, and coming to him. Coming to him. What is is this? This is a continuation of verse 3. And really verses 1 through 3. Remember what Peter has said and what we studied last week. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have, or since you have, tasted the kindness of the Lord. And that last phrase... Since you as a true believer, every true believer has tasted the kindness of the Lord, that means that you've been up close to the Lord. You came to Him for salvation and tasted a redeeming kindness that you now enjoy constantly. Remember, as Peter wrote that phrase, tasted of the kindness of the Lord, he was quoting from Psalm 34, verse 8, which says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good... How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And he's continuing that thought. You tasters who have come to Jesus for salvation, continue in that close proximity and access to Jesus. You've tasted, verse 3, and you continue to come to him. This is a participle that is, continuous this is present it's 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 a it's a stated reality that you continue to come to him not to get saved all over again that's what happened in verse three but now it's your salvation that you have from christ has opened access to jesus and to the father and you continue wearing down that path that's been open to you paul will write again about this in romans chapter five and talk about this grace in which you now have access He's saying you've tasted something sweet in salvation and it's not a one-time deal. You are saved one time, but that salvation gives you open doors. And it says here, this is in the middle voice, it means no one else does this for you, this coming back and being refreshed and enjoying this access to Jesus. It's something that's going on constantly You, in, in a way that you're doing this. It's, it's something you deem important and something you deem a point of rejoicing that you have this access. Wow. You have constant access to Jesus. So does the believer that's in persecution right now in Ukraine or in Africa or in any country in the world where there are dark expressions of depravity lashing out at true believers of Jesus. You share something in common with them. These are your brothers and sisters, and you're bumping into them at the throne of grace. They have access because they're family now. They are all children of God, and they wear this path down to the throne. I remember the quarterback Peyton Manning, when he was still playing during his active years, in one interview when his team was eliminated late in postseason. He used the word embarrassed in the interview. He was embarrassed, he said, that he worked, he and his team worked so hard during the regular season to get access to the postseason and ultimately to the Super Bowl. And in that interview, he talks of, we wanted to be one of the 32 teams that got to the Super Bowl, and we are embarrassed we didn't make it. One of, out of 32 teams. You know, I I, I hear his ethos and pathos there, but I I don't feel that when it comes to my access and your access to the very throne of God through Jesus Christ. It's 100% participation for those who are truly in Christ. It's not one out of 37 teams or 37 disciples. Those that God has set his electing love on in eternity past, that he regenerates at a point in time, have that access, 100%. Commentator E.F. Harrison writes, No other faith can claim a living founder who has passed through death and has risen to a triumphant station at God's right hand, there to be continually available to the immediate fellowship of each one who trusts him. That's right. It was Jesus himself that said, oh, the fellowship's going to be sweet between me and my own. He told his disciples, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Listen to this. And we, the Father and I, will will come to him and make our abode with him. Up close. Or as the writer of Hebrews has stated in Hebrews 4.16, let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My father-in-law, who's been in heaven now almost a year, he, uh, he used to tell us all the time when we would say goodbye to him after a visit before we lived in Michigan, he'd always say the same thing. I love you, and I'll see you at the throne. He would just say that. And we're getting ready to put five states between us again after a visit. He says, I'll see you at the throne, meaning I'll be there, you be there too. That's the access we have, and you share that in common with every believer, in every culture, in every country. You know what this does? This reality, you say, well, how does this reality keep me grounded in the conflict of persecution and suffering? Well, this reality answers a very important question, and it's this. Especially as you you see suffering coming, it answers this question. Am I on my own in this? No, you're not. You'll have complete access to your Lord all the way through it. It's a sweet reality. But there's a second reality that Peter points out here in verses 4 and 5. It's a shared life from Jesus. Shared life from Jesus. Again, look at verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones. We have the living stone of Jesus in verse 4, and then we get to the beginning of verse 5, and now we're we're called living stones ourselves. There must be something significant with that. The same title being directed at Jesus, and now it's, listen, it's being directed to you. You're a living stone. Everything's living in Peter. Have you noticed that? In verse 3, uh, it says that we've been born again to a living hope. You notice that? And then in chapter 1, verse 23, you've been born again not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that through the living and enduring word of God, we have a living hope, we have a living Bible, and now we have living stones. I think Peter here is actually doing a a a, a fairly surgical throat punch. He's taken out Jews and Gentiles with this phrase he's calling us. Stones don't live. But the Jews would say, our hope is fixed on that building over there, the temple made of what? Stones. But at the same time, the Gentiles say, you want to know what's alive? Let me... Get in my pocket here and pull out my idol, which is made of what? Stone. You can stare at that building all day long, or you can stare at that stone idol all day long. It's not going to move. And I think Peter here is being provocative in a good way. He's stating a metaphor, or some may want to call it even a paradox, because as we think of living stones in in the theater of our minds, it just doesn't work. Stones don't have life. As a matter of fact, could Jesus have reached for any more vivid example of what can't live? Stones don't breathe. Man, when I go on some of the uh, the trips the Lord has allowed me to go on uh, through the years for ministry, I I promise I I, I actually do some things I don't know is legal. I I don't know, but I always want to bring a little stone back from something significant. When I go to, I was at Lake Michigan for a couple hours, it feels like, beginning of last week with family, and we were walking along the shore looking for what? Petoskey stones. Did I find one? No. My wife always finds one inside of the first 30 seconds. She did, again, and she was the only one out of however many, 16, were on that boat. So not Petoskey stones I've found at, of all places, Petoskey. When I was in Israel, I have a little stone from the floor of the, of the synagogue at Nazareth where Jesus read Isaiah. They believe that they got down to the original flooring or close to it. So I'm like, need a stone. I did that one while someone was praying. I just reached down and well, it was a closed curtain, you know, conveniently. I have a stone from uh, the empty tomb. The garden tomb, even if that's not the, the, the true site of his burial, I have a stone from there. I have a stone from Jerusalem. I have a stone from Mount, uh, Mount Denali in Alaska. That one, I'm pretty sure, was illegal, but accidents happen. And uh, that, I put them in my dirty clothes bag, and they were little tiny ones. And I'll give it back in the newer, new creation if I have to. Um, I just like these little stones. You know, I, I have a lot of stones I'm not going to tell you about because we're being recorded. But if I, the ones I've told you about, Denali, Nazareth, Jerusalem, uh, Lake Michigan, if I line these stones up on the shelf and just stare at them, and I might even get my iPhone out and turn the magnifying glass thing on with the light, with the, with the light and zoom in so I'm really up close to those stones... And if I study those stones for hours a day, you know what I'll never see? I will never see any one of those rocks breathe. I'll never see any one of those rocks move. I'll never see any one of those rocks or hear any of those rocks sing. Never. It's interesting when our Lord, remember when he came into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passion Week and the crowds were praising him. Remember what the Pharisees said? Luke 19, verse 39 and 40. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I'll tell you one thing. If these disciples become silent, the stones will cry out. This is quite a picture Peter's reaching for. Why? It's ridiculous to think in our mind of a stone having life. I also find it interesting that Peter, of all people, is writing this. Of all people, Peter is the one who's doing this rock language. Why? Because in John 1.42, Jesus renamed Simon. Remember him? Remember that? He says, I'm going to, your name's Simon, I'm going to call you Petras. That's a small stone. But then in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18... Uh, or in Matthew chapter 16, um, remember Peter answers the question from our Lord, Who do you say that I am? Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, Peter, I'm going to build my, my church on that rock that you, an apostle, stated. That confession that you, as an apostle, have drawn into concrete is going to be a foundation stone, a petra. So of all people, and we learned this when we studied Peter's life, he's the one using rock language, but what he's doing now is turning that totally the other way around under the inspiration of Scripture. Jesus called Peter a rock. What's Peter calling Jesus now? He's calling him, though it's a different Greek word, lithos, he's still calling him a rock. I love that. And it's not just a rock, but look back at this verse. It's described with two words. It's choice. We get our word elect from that. And it's precious. That's the word teme. It's, it's to be of high value. Peter is saying that Jesus is the, the, the elect and precious living stone. Why would he call Jesus a living stone? Well, he's impenetrable, he's resurrected, he is personal. And he himself is life giving. We say, if all that's true about Jesus, and I agree with that, and the voice of the testimony of Scripture underlines and highlights that, why do I get called a living stone then? And here's why the only reason that Peter calls you a living stone is because of your organic connection to the living stone, Jesus himself. It kind of makes you think of what Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, doesn't it? I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Yeah. It kind of makes you think of Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. And Christ, who is our life, when he's revealed, will be revealed with him in glory. Even Peter himself will write these words in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. For by these he has granted to us, Christians, his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The life is in the Son. And you're a living stone because you're organically connected to the Son, and it's all by the Father's doing. I love what John writes in 1 John 5, 11. The testimony is this. That God has given us eternal life. And this life is in the Son. So time to hit pause. And I need to ask you a question. Have you experienced that life? Have you come to the resurrected, personal, life-giving Son of God... And come to him by faith, believing that he died for your sin. And he rose again, conquering the grave. And he now offers you the free gift of eternal life. If you believe. If you turn. Have you accepted that? It's not that you just become something significant in and of yourselves. In and of yourself, you're still a dead, cold stone. But when the life of the living stone, the living stone, courses through you. You have life. Who gets the credit for the life? Not you, him. I get bored with my flashlights from time to time, so I get on Amazon. I don't need another one. But I confess about a week ago, I started getting close to pressing order. I just couldn't convince myself how to get Dave Krause to market off as office supplies, so I didn't order it. And I'm looking at lumens, I'm looking at all all that stuff, brightness. Let's say I bought a new flashlight, 200, 400 lumen flashlight. And I hooked it up to the nuclear power plant that you see near Monroe when you drive to Ohio. I have a feeling that it's going to be more than 500 lumens. That thing's going to go berserk. You'll see that from space. But the power wouldn't be from that light. Power would be from the source to that light, the source of power to that light. It's the same with us as believers. He's the living stone, and we are living stones because of him. You know what you share with every other believer across the ages and across the oceans and across the cultures? You share this. You have a shared life from Jesus. And this is an important reality because this will keep you grounded during the conflict of suffering, You say, in what way? Well, this reality answers the question, what if the worst comes in this suffering? The answer is, you're going to be okay. You're a living stone. Stone. You have access. You have life. But you also have, in common with other believers, deployment. Because the third reality is this. Peter points this out in verse 5. You have sovereign placement by Jesus. Sovereign placement by Jesus. Look at verse 5 again. You also, as living stones, watch this. You're being built up as a spiritual house. You're being built up as as a spiritual house. Go back to that confession where in our Lord's earthly ministry, we've covered this in our study of Peter's life where, again, Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say to him in Matthew 16, 18? You're right. And it's on this, I'm going to build my church. That's significant that Peter is talking in this language again with this pen Because he, in essence, is describing his readers as the fulfillment of that promise. God is taking living stones and building a spiritual house. That's what Jesus promised would happen. Hmm. This is language that Paul will employ as well in Ephesians 2, verses 21 to 22. Listen to this. In whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also, you readers, are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Again, Paul will put it this way simply in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He's talking about plural here. He's not just talking about individual believers, but all believers when he writes, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Hebrews 3, 6 agrees. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. This is interesting. This is very important in verse 5. You are being built up. That means constantly. It's present tense. But this is in the passive, which means it's not you doing the building. Someone's using you to do the building. You're part of what he's building as a living stone. Who's doing the building? The one who said he would. I will build my church. And he's bringing, he's rescuing cold, lifeless stones, making them living stones and using these stones, placing them right where they need to go into the house. He's building a spiritual house. As a matter of fact, I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18. He says, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, listen to this phrase, just as he desired. In other words, when you come to Christ and you're a new creature, you're now a living stone, he doesn't just toss you in the pile. He's putting you strategically and intentionally, listen to this, Right where he wants you. This is called sovereign placement by the Lord. This spiritual house grows corporately in correspondence to your individual growth. It's not enough for you to say, well, I'm a believer. I don't have to take this seriously and live the radical discipleship thing. I'm in. I'm in the wall. I'm in the building, right? Is that what you're saying? No. You're a living stone in that building. And as you grow and mature, and as the other members grow and mature, the whole house matures. Never, ever, brothers and sisters, forget this very important conclusion and it's this. You were placed by the hands of Jesus exactly where he wanted you. He wants you here right now as a local expression of this body. As a living stone. He wants you here right now with them. He's a who's the them? Look around the room. He could have placed you with the thems of the 1980s here, or the thems of the 2040s here, the Lord tarries. But he's got you here right now with them. And included in the them are those that aren't always lovable. You say, who's the biggest troublemaker? Next thing, Next time you walk in front of the mirror privacy of your own home, you might meet them. Jesus wants you right now with them right here. John MacArthur notes, the only one who could set all the angles of God's house is the living, perfectly prepared cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And he's right. And this is something that will keep you grounded. This reality will keep you with great traction, during the intensity of suffering. Why? Because it answers this question. This reality answers this question. Am I stuck? Do I merely have to endure being here now with them? No. No, you thrive. Being here now with them. Knowing that the Lord has sovereignly placed you right where he wants you. But understand this, your deployment is not static. It's not passive. Your deployment in the local church is to be one of shock and awe. See, what do you mean? This is the fourth reality. The fourth reality. I see this in verse 5. Look at verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, here we go, for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The fourth reality is this. You have a clear agenda through Jesus. A clear agenda as to what you're to be involved in because Jesus makes it clear. What does he call you here? As a living stone, he says, being a living stone makes you a priest. Understand something about priests that we see in the Old Testament. A priest needs no mediator. He is the mediator. He approaches God. Even in the Old Testament, as the writer of Hebrews says, he has to offer sacrifice for his own sins. But then he goes and is the mediator between Yahweh, there in the temple, and, and, or there in the, in the tabernacle, and later the temple, and the people. But now we're being called priests. As living stones. We don't need a mediator on a human level. Our mediator is Jesus Christ. We are God's abode. And it says in verse 5 that as a priesthood of living stones, we're to be busy. It says offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what is a spiritual sacrifice? I mean, the physical ones involved lambs, right? And oxen and... And grain and birds. Is that what we're supposed to do? No. This is a spiritual sacrifice. And we're not left to wonder. The New Testament is very clear. I've identified in the page of the scripture, as you have in your study, several sacrifices that are spiritual in the New Testament. You need a couple of reminders? First of all, commitment is a sacrifice. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See, what does that verse follow? It follows right on the heels of verse 1, where it says, um, you are to have your spiritual service of worship with this commitment. Commitment to the work of Christ is a spiritual sacrifice. There's a second one, Praise. Praise. Is a spiritual sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him, then, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. That's what we did. It's what we're still gonna do in this service. Praise is a sacrifice. You want another one? Meeting needs of others is a sacrifice. In God's eyes, a spiritual sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And by the way, that doesn't become a sacrifice if they only when they return the favor. It's a greater sacrifice when you give, and they can't give anything to you. You want another one? Spiritual sacrifice? Grace giving is a spiritual sacrifice. Philippians 4.18 I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent to me, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. When you give on a regular, systematic basis to the local church to support the ministry of the gospel here, in God's sight, that's a spiritual sacrifice. You want another spiritual sacrifice? You know personal evangelism is a personal sacrifice. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 15, verse 16. I am to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering, listen, as a priest, the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Personally, when you witness to someone, even if they slam the door in your face for the 20th time, You're worshiping. You want another one? There's a lot of spiritual sacrifices in the New Testament. Another one is this: listen, dying well as a Christian is a sacrifice. And we got two verses on this one. Paul's going to use the same um, description of his impending death for the sake of the gospel, his impending death with full confidence that he'll be absent from the body and present with the Lord. That's dying well. He says, that's a sacrifice. He says in 2 Timothy 4, six some of his last recorded words, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And he'll use that drink offering illustration in Philippians 2, verse 17 again as well. So you have a clear agenda from Jesus. You're busy as a living stone you are a priest. And you, as a priest, bring spiritual sacrifices all the time. You're not just bouncing around, filling in the gap between Sundays, listening to podcast sermons. No, you're, you're engaged. You're giving. You're presenting sacrifice. Remember what David said when he bought the threshing, the threshing floor that later would be the building site of the temple? The owner of that threshing floor, if you recall, says, oh, you can't buy this for me. I'm just going to give it to you, and I'll give you the animals to sacrifice on it. And David made this statement that's interesting, and it applies to us today with New Testament eyes. David said, I will not give to God what costs me nothing. Sacrifices are supposed to be felt. It's not between you and someone else. It's between you and God. You say, well, man, you know, okay, so commitment praise meeting needs grace giving evangelism i and that death one i i don't know man i i don't know if i can do that well enough to call it a sacrifice i've fallen on my face so many times and giving consistently or sharing the gospel or meeting needs that i'm aware of or even focusing in praise or even maintaining a a radical commitment and i just i can't do any of these sacrifices perfectly you ever feel that way Good, because you just walked right into Peter's pen at the end of this verse. Watch this. Even though we can't do sacrifices perfectly, it says at the end of verse 5, we offer up spiritual sacrifice that are acceptable to God. Why? Because of your perfection? No, through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ not only takes our imperfect prayers, listen, but our imperfect sacrifices and makes them acceptable to God. Wow. 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 You know, this reality answers the question, am I paralyzed? Am I someone that just won't get used in the local body of Christ called Calvary? Am I sidelined? No. No, actually, more accurately, you're a living stone and therefore a priest. Offering spiritual sacrifices. Well, there's one more reality that will keep you grounded during the turmoil Persecution during those times when you're tired and you're pressed and you're leveled, there's a fifth reality, and it's a fixed hope because of Jesus. You have a fixed hope because of Jesus. Now, in the next three verses, and then we're done, Peter is going to quote three Old Testament passages in this order. He's going to quote a passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 28, verse 16. He's going to quote Psalm 118 verse 22 and then he's going to swing back to what he read in the devotions earlier that morning to Isaiah again and quote Isaiah 8:14. Watch this. Look at verse 6. For this is contained in scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And Peter writes this precious stone then is for you who believe. This precious stone, that this teme, this value, is for you. But for your persecutors, or as Peter will write it, those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense what people hate about you, the fact that you belong to the stone, the rock we call Jesus, that rock, unless they repent, will roll over on them and crush them. The thing, the person they hate the most is your Lord, and it's the Lord who will judge them unless they repent. And it says at the end of verse 8, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Hmm. He's the cornerstone. Language that is introduced in the Old Testament and carried through in the New Testament. And we even read about it being quoted this way in the Gospel accounts. He's the cornerstone. You know, it's interesting. Archaeologists in that area have uncovered a lot of quarries where stones were cut, cornerstones were cut. And one archaeology discovery was a cornerstone um, cut out and the area that was cut out we could determine the dimensions of this cornerstone which was used to set the proper angles and foundation and lines of a huge structure and the size of this one cornerstone is not like a little brick in our churches it was 69 feet by 12 feet by 13 feet put that in your F-150 And Jesus is the cornerstone of the spiritual house we are. It's what Paul said in Ephesians as well. We read it earlier, Ephesians 2.20. And there's promises just leaping out of these three verses. We don't need to be ashamed. We're being crushed, we're being pursued because of our, our stone that we're connected to, Jesus Christ. But we don't have to be ashamed. He's pretty big. And pretty indestructible. And not only do we not need to be ashamed, understand that no matter how people sling accusations and blasphemy towards Jesus, even today, or towards us as his representatives, listen, it doesn't even touch how chosen he is and how precious he is. Peter uses that language again in verse down here at the end of this passage as he did at the beginning. This is a fixed hope we have. Peter preached this in Acts chapter 4 looking into the eyeballs of the Sanhedrin with many of the members who put Jesus to death weeks before. Peter says to them, quoting the Old Testament, Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, is the stone which was rejected by you, he says. The builders, uh, but which became, uh, you the builders, but the which became this one you rejected, the chief cornerstone. One commentator just Summarizes it beautifully here. McDonald says, Living stone, rejected stone, precious stone, cornerstone, touchstone, there can be no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. He will be either Savior or judge. And how haunting are the last words of verse 8? Those who disobey the word, the gospel, this is the use that uh, Peter has already shown at the end of chapter 1. Talking about the word, we're talking about the gospel. If people are disobedient to that, they are doomed and they are appointed to condemnation and wrath. You say, well, which is it? Is God, does God keep them from believing and they don't have a choice in the deal? Or, or what is it? Or, or he, they disbelieve and God merely has to respond to them. Whatever it is with that tension, I'm not, going to take the, I'm not going to take points away from God. I'm going to take points away from man understanding that tension. But I, I appreciate Dr. Edwin Blum and his commentary with this sentence. Human disobedience is within God's plan, but it does not become less blameworthy. End quote. You see... Does God know who's going to be saved? Is God actively, sovereignly engaged in that? And who will be passed over? I have to say yes, because I believe Scripture says that. But I also see that Scripture clearly holds man accountable for not believing and not repenting. You say, explain the tension. I can't. Neither can you. But we can understand the command that we take the gospel to absolutely everyone. And leave the part we don't understand with God. Spurgeon, someone once asked Spurgeon, how come you give the gospel to everyone? By the way, Spurgeon was pretty Calvinistic. Why? Why do you give the gospel to everyone? And Spurgeon says, Well, if, I mean, if you want to sneak up on them when I'm talking to them and pull off their shirt and see if I see a big E on their chest for elect, I'll just talk to those people. But you can't, and the scripture says we give the gospel to everyone and trust the Spirit of God to work. We trust the wind to blow. Oh, this will give you stability. This end this fixed hope with Jesus, because of Jesus? Because it answers the question, where is the north in my persecution? How do I get my bearings when everything's just crushing on me because I'm a disciple of Jesus? Just remember that it's not going to change anything with you. You have a fixed hope to a living stone. So, If you can tune in in July and August past the incessant cultural moral revolution promotions and you still choose to watch the World Cup soccer in July and August, don't just focus on uniforms. Focus on the importance of names. Because it's the names that keep the ladies grounded during the tense competition. Their personal name, their country name, their teammates name and their coaches name. Who they are. And as you roll up to this persecution that is upon us now here in the West, this is not just a wave that will go back out to sea, though some are promising that it is. It's totally consistent with the downgrade that Paul predicts in Romans 1. They're going to come for you because they can't hit Jesus. What will keep you and your brothers and sisters locally, globally, And across all cultures, what will keep you grounded? Just remembering what Peter coached these believers. You have a constant access to Jesus. You have a shared life from Jesus. There's a sovereign placement by Jesus of you into this building. There's a clear agenda of sacrifices through Jesus and a fixed hope because of Jesus. You, listen, are living stones. And we are all in this together. As a matter of fact, I close with these words, the worst day of persecution will be the greatest opportunity to put the living stone on display to the world that hates him. May they see his mercy as well. Lord Jesus, thank you for these words from the pen of Peter, from you. And I pray, Lord, as the storm clouds do continue to gather and more ground is lost that won't be returned in our culture. We're saddened and we are still light and salt. But no matter how much crumbles under our feet, we still have a solid rock to stand on. And as living stones, we have much work to do on our watch. Keep us faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.